welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to the next episode of Sleep Talk, our podcast talking all things sleep. I'm David Cunnington and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Moira Junger. Hello. So this is episode seven in our podcast series and our theme this month is busyness. You're too busy to sleep. Is that a familiar thing? Being busy seems to be a badge that we all wear uh, proudly. You know, if people ask you, are you busy, Moira? What do we say? Oh, absolutely. We'll probably say, yeah, yeah, sure. What about you? Like, it's not likely that you're going to say, no, I'm not very busy. I'm actually kind of cutting down. I'm getting to bed earlier to maximise my sleep and I'm minimising my opportunities in the workplace. Like, have you ever heard anyone say that? No. <laughs> But it's probably a, a, a probably a good lesson, really, or a good thing to say occasionally, or to start thinking about. Perhaps we need to start prioritising sleep, not wearing busyness as a badge of honour. Actually, yeah. trying to be less busy would yeah. be. And our impetus for doing this particular topic is a lot of the clients that we see are busy, and mm. that busyness really leads into the brain not switching off well at night, and then not sleeping well. And often they're coming to us focusing on the sleep. But when we pair it back, it's probably about busyness. Yeah, and I'm really glad that originally when we started to talk about this and planning out which ones we're going to do per month, remember we talked about being being for business and say as in business and corporate sector and then we've changed it to busyness rather than business because it's not just the corporate sector. Don't you see that? We see people Absolutely. where they, they could be stay-at-home mum, uh, teachers, things that not so corporate but really busy, like busy, yeah. busy, not not switching off their brains no matter what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely. really important. So, And there's lots of data to show that busyness has an impact on sleep. So some research in this area was published in 2014 from the American Time uh, Use Survey, which is a survey of Americans looking at how they actually use their time. And some of the interesting findings from that was that the earlier that work or school starts, the shorter sleep people get. So that from their research, they estimated that if school or work started an hour later, people on average would get 20 minutes more sleep per day. They also found that factors associated with an increased risk of sleeping less than six hours per night uh, were being male. Yeah, mm-hmm. men just don't get it, do they? <laughs> uh, being of working age, uh, were having a high household income. Mm, that's that's not surprising, really, but interesting, isn't it? Yeah, from an economic sense, I've heard economists talk about this, and they talk about the higher opportunity cost of sleep. Mm. So if you're earning mm. a high dollars per hour, it's more expensive to sleep. You could Absolutely. be earning more dollars. Time is in, money. In that time. <laughs> yeah, true. Our society really has a culture of busyness and sleeplessness. There's lots of quotes of people historically um, about being wearing like a badge of honour, being proud about barely sleeping. There's this great quote from Bill, Quint- Bill Clinton when he came in in 1992. What I came here tonight to promise you is that I will stay up late and get up early and work hard as long as it takes to turn this country around and give it back to the American people. Funnily enough, our own Prime Minister had a very similar quote when uh, our first woman Prime Minister in Australia, Julia Gillard, in her first speech talked about almost exactly the same words as Bill Clinton about making Australia a place for people that get up early in the yeah, morning. Yeah, yeah. So really equating um, staying up late, getting up early, truncating your sleep, reducing your sleep as um, as hardworking, which it is. There's no doubt about it. Is it? That's, it shows a lot of commitment. It's, it's hardworking. It's, but for some people particularly, it's not sustainable. Yeah. And we know long term, it's very, very clear evidence that it's it's poor for your health. 
mental health, physical health. I mean, the literature is it's really clear now. Yeah. And for decision-making too. So there's all that data on lack of sleep um, equating to impairment, like the equivalent of drinking alcohol. Yeah, exactly. Like 24 hours or so of staying awake, it's, you know, 0, 0, 0.08. I think 17 hours of being awake, you're the equivalent of 0.05. And that's a bit scary, really, because 17 hours is really isn't getting up about 6 in the morning and by 11 p.m. when you might be driving home from something, you're the equivalent of 0.05 whether you've been drinking or not. I know, and our, our senators in Australia in March were debating something overnight in the Senate for 28 to 30 hours continuously, and they're proud that they're making these decisions. And, man, when are they going to stop doing crazy stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it doesn't start at that level, that prioritising sleep, then I don't know. Where, where's it going to end, I guess? We have to have at a very high level, at a government level, I mean, you can't legislate you can to make people sleep. <laughs> I wish we could. Come on. <laughs> But I guess sort of role modelling at the very least, don't you think, yeah, of, of, you know, of what what it means to be, uh, you know, available or making, yeah, making good decisions. You can't make good decisions. We talk about that all the time with my patients who are having some kind of sleeping difficulty, feeling very tired, might have a lot of other things going on. I say, you actually can't make a decision right now about that. So let alone the Senate making decisions about our, our country. Yeah. Mm. And the US Republican nominee, Donald Trump, Oh, what's he, he got to say? Yeah. I haven't heard this quote. Is there a quote? <laughs> well, yeah, there's, there's plenty. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> but one of the cleaner, cleaner quotes that's about sleep goes, I've got friends who are successful and sleep 10 hours a night, and I ask them, how can you compete against people like me if I only sleep four hours? <laughs> um, I know. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Maybe his mood regulation, maybe he's sort of his tact, maybe he's the way he treats his colleagues. <laughs> Maybe he does need a bit more than four hours sleep. Yeah, and we'll talk about that a bit later in the podcast about leaders and the effect of lack of sleep on leadership. And it's not just politicians and the business world. You know, in the social media space, um, there's people like Gary Vaynerchuk, who's fantastic, a great mentor for people in social media. Uh, But Gary posted on Twitter and Instagram recently a quote, work like there's someone working 24 hours a day to take it all away from you. And that's a really, you know, all-encompassing quote about, you know, get hustling, get busy. Yeah, yeah. Don't lie down, and I don't know what's that saying. Let's sleep, sleep when you're dead. Or, yeah. Or just don't, don't give into it. Or it's weak. Yeah. Perhaps that's the. And and then where that comes across in some of the clients we see that are mm. almost looking for sleep to be machine-like. I need mm. to be working flat out, then mm. I need to be able to stop like mm. a machine, and then go to sleep. And then yeah. I need to start again. And, and we just, there's not, I mean, nothing we know yet is that I haven't got anything in my bag of tricks that can help people do that. No. Often it's about learning to manage stress, learning to delegate, learning to say no to some things, not shock or block you. Sometimes people just lose themselves in the busyness as well, don't you think? Like I think I'm a bit biased as a psychologist. I think sometimes it distracts us. I know I've done it myself in times of terrible grief, for instance. Um, I just got busy. I mm-hmm. got as busy as I could to just, I didn't want to think about how sad I was. Yeah. Or, and so that's not, I'm saying that everyone's doing that, but there's a, there is an element of needing to be distracted. And just needing to just keep going. And, and you, find, you find yourself on a bit of a treadmill. So we're going to get into this a bit more a bit later on. And we'll interview Christopher Barnes from the U- University of Washington and also Simon Kinsella from CP Consulting here in Australia. So what's been in the news? What's topical at the moment? So when this episode goes to air, I'll be in Denver at the Sleep 2016 uh, conference, catching up on all the latest research about sleep. And that'll Fill the next episode. Yeah, that can't we'll wait put, for that. Wish I was going in. next year, perhaps. And pity we didn't get that symposium up that we proposed, but I maybe know, next year for that. That as I would well. have definitely gone if it was a 
if we got that up. But um, And the ASA webinar that was called Sleeping Like a Mum. We talked about last uh, podcast, and that's that was it's been and gone. It was well received, wasn't it? It was good. Yeah, it was really it was really great, and it's mm. still available mm. uh, online. Uh, and so the links in the show notes if you want to click through to that and watch that uh, webinar. What about social media? What's been on Sleep Hub recently? So I did put up a video recently on having a sleep study. So if you want to have a laugh at my expense, see me get wired up for having. Oh, you're a sleep, good. Actually, you're a, a good sport. <laughs> It's more like I couldn't talk anybody else into it, so I had to be the guinea pig myself. Yeah, I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> so, yeah, if you want to see what having a sleep study is all about, check that out on Sleep Hub. And I also wrote a post uh, recently about white noise. You know, a lot of people we see use earplugs, use some sort of background yeah, noise to help common. with yeah. sleep at night. Um, so I've tried to write a little bit about that and does it work? Yes, it does. Yep. There's actually a couple of nice research papers showing white noise can be beneficial in people mm. having difficulties with sleep. Oh, that's good. I must read that because uh, I have no doubt that it's beneficial. But sometimes I have just a word of warning for people, some kind of caution, just not to be too dependent on anything, whether it's a sleeping pill, a particular white noise app or headphones, because every now and then they might not be available. And it's nice to be able to have the confidence that you can generate sleep anyway. Yeah, really good point. Moira, and I'd, I'd echo that, that we don't want people to get in that sense of I can only sleep with this and this yeah. and this. So it's nice to have useful tools and adjuncts and, and and sometimes, but just to know that you don't need them 100% of the time. Every day I'm hustling, 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 hustling. As we talked about in the introduction, our theme for this month is busyness. You know, can we sacrifice sleep for work? What's the impact of not getting enough sleep on both work performance and health? And there are lots of industries that are really well regulated, like trucking, pilots, you know, those type of things. But I've got to tell you, there's other industries that you'd think are regulated that aren't. So, for example, in my role as a um, senior medical staff officer in a hospital setting or as a consultant working in my own practice, there are no limits on the hours I can work. Mm, no one's really checking, are they? No one's checking. Scary but true. What about the young residents in public hospitals? Has anyone yeah, really so, checked? That's probably sure. That, that's actually well controlled. Mm. So the junior doctors, before they graduate as consultants, are actually pretty tightly regulated. Yeah, they weren't in my day. They were yeah. not. When my day at the Alfred, many, they weren't. Uh, well, not to the extent it is now. Like people were doing very long shifts, way more than 24-hour shifts at times. Is that, that doesn't happen anymore? No, not no. so much. But in the consultant sort of realm, yeah. I, I had a colleague ring me uh, asking about his anaesthetist. So he works a surgeon that was working with an anaesthetist and he said, I'm a bit worried about my anaesthetist. You know, he um, after he's finished his five-day shift, he gets on a plane and flies to the Netherlands, spends two days in the Netherlands and then flies back and comes from directly from the airport to come and do anaesthetics on people for the whole day. Is that okay? Oh, every week? <laughs> every week. Oh, wow. That's really flying, fly out, taken to the extreme, isn't it? I know, but it's crazy. So you've got jet lag, you've got sleep deprivation, all of those things, and yet yeah, you're able to give with... anaesthetics mm. in an uncontrolled sort of way. So, yeah, unfortunately, there's a bit of room to go in terms of regulating work. And there's lots of other industries where work hours aren't regulated. We've talked already about politicians, but a lot of the clients we see are executives or business owners. Yeah, and, and mums. You know, yeah. Let's not forget the, the busy, that's the, the ultimate 24-7 job. Isn't exactly. It? And dads. <laughs> and I sort of think of mums as being both. You know, they are often got their own, got a job. Mm. They've got their household sort of responsibilities maybe with the family. Mm. But then they run their own small business. Each house is its own small business. Yeah. So all mums are sort of. CEOs. Yeah, CEOs <laughs> of the home business. Yeah. So they get it bad on, on all accounts. Mm. I guess it's, yeah, it's just pushing through, isn't it? Trying to just create 
some boundaries where if it's not otherwise regulated, trying to bring it out yourself, like generate some boundaries. Yeah, and some of the think questions that come up in clients that we see, you know, as people are concerned about their sleep, but often feel that they're actually very successful. But if you ask people around them, people around them go, yeah, you know what, you're actually not quite as successful as you think. The wheels are starting to fall off. You might have been bit sort of grumpy, pushing. A bit unkind. I mean, you've got some good, there's good data on that, isn't there? I know that Chris Barnes has done that, which we'll hear about later, but he's done some research in that area. Yeah. Isn't he, that people can really change their behaviour depending yeah. on... And they think they're coming across as really successful. Well, think they're coming off across as successful but end up in a doctor's office or a specialist's office like myself yeah. seeking help for yeah. not sleeping well. Yeah. So there's a disconnect there. And I think generally it serves you well. Like generally speaking, like you put lots of effort in, you do hard work, of course, that's usually going to work well. Yeah. It's one of those only – it's an area that just doesn't work so well with your sleep. Yeah, and it's a fine line. You know, that yeah. psychological principle of the stress performance curve mm. and we perform well if we're right at the peak of yeah, that stress that performance level. curve. Yeah. You push that little bit harder. Yeah, and then performance goes p- much performance flatter. But if there's not enough arousal, not enough care factor, it's also low performance. Yeah. yeah. So I have done actually a short YouTube video about the stress performance curve. So I'll put a link to that oh, in the good. show yeah. notes. Because I often talk about that, I use a bit of paper on um, in my work, but it'd be great to have that as a link to show people. So we're going to get into a couple of interviews. Our first interview is with Christopher Barnes from the University of Washington. And Christopher is an assistant professor of management in the Foster School of Business. His primary research interest is sleep as it relates to the workplace, uh, including outcomes in the workplace. And his research is published very widely, both in medical journals, but also in business and management journals. And he gets a lot of coverage in press outlets, including writing for the Huffington Post and the Harvard Business Review. So welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Now, we see a lot of people who are busy and either working professionals or executives in leadership positions. And often people in those positions can trade off sleep for work. And that can have an impact both on them, but also on people around them. What are some of the impacts your research has shown? Well, there are a variety of effects of sleep deprivation on work-related outcomes. And I think you have to start from the basic idea that there's a bit of a quality-quantity trade-off. What you're describing is a clear incentive to squeeze in a few more hours of work at the expense of a few hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. And at first glance, that seems like a good trade, like I can get more stuff done if I just sleep a bit less. But you're really sacrificing on a lot of dimensions that kind of tie into quality and what things you should be doing as a manager, an executive, or just an employee in general. Mm -hmm. So we see that when people are sleep deprived, uh, they make all sorts of decision errors at greater frequencies than when they're well rested. So they're more likely to chase after risky prospects that are unjustified. They're less likely to be creative in their work. Uh, they're more likely to catch errors and not, sorry, to make errors and not realize that they're making errors. So those errors propagate through the system. A uh, variety of other effects as well, especially when we look at employees in general. So my research shows that when employees are short on sleep, uh, their ability to exert self-control suffers. And as a result, they're more likely to engage in things like unethical behavior and cyber loafing at work. Uh, so when we trade away sleep time for more work time, it makes us less productive, less effective, less efficient, uh, and generally worse employees and worse uh, managers and leaders. Yeah. And so how does that impact? So if leaders in the workplace aren't getting enough sleep, how does that impact on the workers they manage and other people around them? 
Well, some of my latest research looks at what happens when leaders are sleep deprived uh, and how does it influence their subordinates, uh, which ties in directly to your question. And we see this play out in a few different ways. Uh, so there's one form of leadership that's called abusive supervision. Mm -hmm. And this is essentially being a jerky boss. Uh, so when leaders engage in this behavior, they're yelling at employees, maybe socially undermining them, uh, punishing them in public, the kinds of jerky behaviors that you do not want your boss to engage in. Uh, uh, these are not effective forms of Yeah, in, me in medicine, we've got a strong tradition of that sort of bullying behavior or pimping at our juniors. So it goes across professions. Yeah, absolutely. And you can imagine that CEOs and other managers are very guilty of this as well. So what I find in my research is that sleep quality predicts these behaviors. Uh, and what I find interesting is it can be the same leader behaving differently on different days. So if the leader gets a good night of sleep, uh, then that boss tends to be nice uh, the next day at work. But if that same leader gets a poor night of sleep, again, because of that decrement in self-control, that leader will be more likely to engage in abusive supervisory behaviors. Uh, we also look at what we call charismatic leadership which is essentially your ability to inspire your employees. And there's a very large literature indicating that when you're a charismatic leader, you're, uh, the performance of your work unit really benefits. Uh -huh. And so we look at this from both sides of the leadership equation, sleep dep deprivation of the leaders and sleep deprivation of the followers. Uh -huh. And we find effects on both sides. So when leaders are sleep deprived, their ability to manage their emotions and really share those positive moods and that excitement and hope with their subordinates suffers. And so subordinates rate those leaders as being lower in charisma. Uh -huh. Then when we look at the other side of the equation, we look at what happens when the subordinates are sleep deprived. Uh -huh. And we find that sleep deprived subordinates are in more negative moods. They're more grumpy. And it's harder to inspire people who are grumpy. Yeah. So these grumpy people evaluate their leaders as lowering charisma. Even if the leader is doing the exact same thing, they get lower charisma ratings because their followers are just naturally grumpy from sleep deprivation. So either leader or uh, subordinate sleep deprivation has important implications for charismatic leadership. Uh -huh. So we find that both positive and negative forms of leadership are both pretty clearly tied to sleep. Uh, and of course, this has important implications for subordinate work outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. So what could leaders do to change either their own sleep or both their own sleep and the sleep of their followers or their employees? Well, I'll start with the first part of that question. What can they do to influence their own sleep? Uh, so there's a large literature on sleep hygiene uh, that ties in nicely to some of the treatment options for people who suffer from insomnia. And that's really about choosing the right set of behaviors that enable a good night of sleep. And so they have to get rid of some bad habits like checking their smartphones while they're in bed uh, and en engaging in behaviors like exercise late at night or smoking late at night, consuming alcohol late at night. These are things that we can adjust to make ourselves naturally sleep better. Consistent bedtimes is another thing. Mm -hmm. So this body of behaviors that we call sleep hygiene can really help anyone sleep better, uh, and that would include leaders. Uh, what I find especially interesting, and I'm pursuing in some of my very latest research that's not yet published, is what do leaders do that influence the sleep of their subordinates? And so here we look at what we call uh, role modeling behaviors. So when leaders talk about how sleep is not important and they're too busy to sleep, and when they send emails at three in the morning when normally they should be sleeping instead, 
This sends a very clear signal to their subordinates that work is a higher priority than sleep, mm-hmm. and you should be willing to sacrifice sleep in order to work more and in order to work at hours in which you be, should be sleeping instead. Yeah. So when leaders engage in these behaviors, the sleep of their subordinate actually suffers. We see lower sleep quantities from these subordinates. But you can choose to be on the other end of that spectrum instead. You can choose to be a leader who sends the message uh, with your own behaviors and uh, with your communications that we want you to be the best employee you can be. And the best way to to enable that to happen is for you to come in well rested Uh so that you can give me your best work that day. And so when you role model this and you talk about how sleep is important and refreshes you to be at your best and you avoid sending emails at three in the morning. This, again, sends the opposite signal that sleep is good and important. We want you to do it. And we find that these subordinates do actually sleep more as a result. So leaders can influence the sleep of their subordinates through this role modeling behavior. Yeah, that's fascinating. (laughs) I once was asked to give a talk for a very large corporation here in Australia, and the CEO briefed me and said, look, we're we're hard workers here. We we work long hours. We make very important decisions with large sums of money. And for me, it was just these two completely incongruent statements about long hours and important decisions and, you know, just trying to justify one against the other. But the research shows the opposite. Exactly. And, and it t- ties back to that quantity quality trade-off. You can work more hours, but the effectiveness of those hours is going to go down. So if you're making important decisions, then you're the person who should be most prioritizing your sleep, not someone who's willing to trade it away. Yeah. Now, you mentioned smartphones, and they're now ubiquitous. We've all got our phones on us all the time as a tool of work and a tool of recreation to some respect. So does smartphone use, particularly before bed or late at night, impact on sleep? Yes. Uh, So this was a uh, research project I had just a few years ago. Uh, We looked at smartphone use late at night. And for the purpose of this study, we just used nine o'clock at night as kind of a cutoff. So we measured the number of minutes people spent on their smartphones after 9 p.m. And we found that that time came at the expense of their sleep. And as a result, the next day at work, they went uh, they went to work that day tired Uh and they were less engaged in their job that day. So there's a bit of an ironic trade-off in which people are trying to squeeze in a bit more time and a bit more work time late at night, usually by email on their phones. And as a result, they're working less the next day. So there's not any kind of net gain. In fact, there's probably a net loss out of this. Uh, We're not really doing this on purpose. It's just the phone is there. It's tempting to use it. And then when we start checking our email late at night, this brings us back into a, a, a mental mindset of being at work. Uh, and it also exposes us to that blue light, which suppresses melatonin production and makes it harder to fall asleep. Yeah, that's really interesting. Another thing I see in my clinic is I see a lot of people with morning sleep inertia. You know, they're eveningness type or owls, as we like to call them, and just mornings are not their time. But it seems like our society workplace is really structured for the larks, the early morning types, the, you know, seen as a high valued employee, they're at work early, uh, never running late. Are early birds really better employees? Well, I've done some research on this, uh, and the first thing I'll say is that in the the data that I have, there was no correlation between chronotype, which is morning uh, larks versus owls, right? Morning versus evening type. Yeah. No correlation between that and work performance. But what we did find is that there's a bias in the way in which employees are evaluated. Uh-huh. So because there's this stereotype that early risers are more conscientious people, harder working, and better employees. People who use their flex time to go into work early 
tend to get higher performance evaluations, even if they do the same quantity or in the same quality of work. Mm -hmm. Those who use their flex time to come into work a few hours later, they suffer the bad end of that stereotype. So they tend to get lower performance evaluations. And here again, there's a bit of an ironic effect because flex time can be a great way to improve the quality of life of your employees. Yeah, People yeah. can use flex time to optimize their schedules to meet all the various demands in their life. And there's research to indicate that when you provide these flex time options, it improves the well-being of your employees. But we punish them for using flex time in a manner that would live, uh, allow them to leave uh, live a, a life of a night owl rather yeah. than a lark. Yeah, it's fascinating. When, when are we going to catch up or when's work practices going to catch up with all that uh, circadian research and sleep research that's been going on? Hopefully things are beginning to shift. I think the conversation is picking up steam, but there's probably still going to be some time that elapses before we see a lot of changes in policies in organizations. Uh, but that's why uh, people like you are doing really important work and really spreading out that information. Yeah, great. And I love the research you're doing, Chris, as well. It really helps and gives us great, clear messages to be able to send out to people that are decision makers around sleep. Yeah, I think it's an important topic uh, that can have a, a really uh, important impact on organizational effectiveness and employee well-being. Great. Thanks for your time today. Happy to be here. So thanks for that interview. Great work with Chris. What did you make of, what's your sort of summary or take-home points from Chris's interview? Yeah, that leaders and managers are not immune to the effects of sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. And often it's the way it manifests may not be immediately obvious to them, yeah. but it's certainly obvious to those around them, yes. both their employees and friends and family, mm -hmm. and has a significant impact on the workplace, you know, workplace culture and workplace productivity. And as you know, we often see people in our practice who can feel a bit bulletproof and feel like they're really doing a great job with leadership but are a bit sleep-deprived, and they may not yeah. quite have that insight into how that is impacting on those around them. Yeah, absolutely. Because sometimes if, when there's anxiety, sometimes they can go the other way and they can be too worried about their impact and other people might not be noticing. Not so much their mood regulation, but they, their performance is actually better than they think it is. Mm -hmm. That's the other extreme. Yeah. Some people can feel really feeling like they're really under scrutiny then everyone can see the bags under their eyes and, and they sometimes they don't as well. So that's the other part of things that's useful to have it balanced then in this discussion yeah. so people don't always get worried about other people around them thinking that their performance is low when yeah. it may not be. Let's switch from talking about the problems lack of sleep can cause and now look at recognising how you or if someone you work with is having trouble with sleep and it's impacting on them. So we're really pleased to welcome Simon Kinsella to join us. So Simon's a registered psychologist who works here in Melbourne and has extensive experience in executive coaching, mentoring and supervision. Uh, Simon coaches executives and individuals who are interested in improving aspects of their performance. He's highly sought after by clients for managing a psychological risk and has particular expertise supporting people in the media spotlight. Uh, Simon, welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us. Thanks, David. So we often see people that are busy and they're coming to see Moira and myself because they're having trouble with sleep. How can people tell if busyness is impacting on them and what type of problems can it cause? Most common problem that I see is that people really have trouble switching off. So <laughs> So at the end of the day after work, they're still thinking about work when they get home. They're thinking about work when they're trying to settle down and go to sleep and they can't get away from their devices, their mobile phones. They'll often be sitting on the couch watching TV with their phone and their partner and their iPad and their computer. Multitasking. <laughs> um, multitasking. Really? <laughs> That's abnormal. <laughs> I'm, in trouble. I'm afraid so, David. <laughs> you need help. <laughs> 
And what about people around them? So they might notice that, but what might family notice or work colleagues notice? Families really pick up on the distance. So they recognise that the person's at home, but they're not actually really present in the room. They'll be thinking about work. They might be intruded on on by uh, text messages or phone calls. Um, and they can be quite irritable sometimes too. They lack, lack tolerance for uh, changes in routine and so on. Even young children can pick up on that, can't they? Like very young children can really name it to their parents that you're not you're not here. You're not present. You're here, but you're not with me. Children are almost better at it, actually, yeah. because they're quite happy to call a spade a spade yes, sometimes and say, <laughs> you know, Dad, play. <laughs> Dad, focus. Yeah. And what's, I mean, we do this all the time. We have strategies. We try to have strategies and help people to, to overcome this. But what kind of things do you do or to help people perhaps overcome their tendency to, to feel this compelled, you know, sort of connected so much to their work and their devices and, and less involved with their families? Well, the first thing really is to try and understand what it is about work that makes it hard for them to disconnect from it. Um, they might be really passionate about their work and I see a few entrepreneurs who are really engaged in what they do and they think about it 24-7, they love it, they really want to build their businesses and build a, a successful enterprise. Um, but, and that's quite different from the person who's working for the man, who's coming home, who's being thrashed by the boss with the tight, tight deadlines, um, or might be working in an industry like mergers and acquisitions where you've got lots of different pressures from lawyers and from bankers and from uh, buyers and sellers and so on. So you've got to look at that first and then help them work out what their priorities are. And most of them, uh, most of the clients that I have, have families or relationships that they want to foster and they want to succeed with. So it's getting them to try and put those uh, interests of theirs, those um, factors of their life in perspective with the rest of their work goals and so on. And if people are looking for strategies about how to switch off, what are some strategies that you'll often use? The first thing I try to get people to do is to work from lists so that they are conscious all the time of what needs to be done and at the end of the day they can close the book on work and they know exactly where they're going to have to pick up the next day. So they're not going home thinking about the 15 different things that they didn't get done because they know it's in the list and they know when they go to work the next day all they have to do is open the book and it's there. Um, other tasks, if they have to be connected after hours to actually confine it to specific pieces of time at night. So they might come home, connect with the family, spend time over dinner, talk to the children, talk to their partners. Um, and then after they've had that period of time connecting, spend maybe half an hour or an hour just dealing with the work things that have to be dealt with, but then put it away again and don't look at it again until the next day. Some people unfortunately work in environments where they have to be contactable 24-7. And so rather than it being a balancing act across a 24-hour period, it might be a balancing act across a week or across a month. So they're putting back into their families and into themselves over a period of time. And then Strategies like relaxation, um, often these people have put no time into yeah. meditation or any kind of relaxation. Mm -hmm. They often uh, have given up on 
recreation altogether and it's helping them to restore that balance. Yeah, which is easier said than done though, isn't it? I guess if, Absolutely. depending on their circumstances, if, if they're yeah, working for themselves or their perceived level of flexibility at least. That's right. And that's where going back to what I was saying earlier becomes really important too, setting the priorities and helping them to understand that if they don't do these things, that things can go horribly wrong. Their marriages can end up on the rocks. Mm. Their health can end up uh, totally out of control if they end up obese or burnt out. And the very things they would probably put in the high on their list of priorities, wouldn't they? People, Absolutely. If they're asked, they do put relationships, health, fitness up, yep. up pretty high, yep. very high. That's right. And in insomnia research, there's data showing that if people use active thought control to switch off their mind, the insomnia gets worse. Yes. If you actively try to quieten the mind, yet that's how we approach everything else in a work sense, analyse it, control it, put in place strategies to fix it. How do you get people to shift into that passive mode of just you know stand back and let things just, just happen? One of the techniques I use a lot in the work that I do is hypnotherapy. And the difference between hypnotherapy and meditation, or one of the differences, is that in meditation we're asking people to clear their minds. And for a lot of people who are busy all the time, stopping thinking is almost impossible, where hypnotherapy gives them permission to keep thinking but not to actually engage in the thoughts. So they sort of learn to look at the thoughts as if they were watching TV and it was happening, but they don't have to engage with it. Once they then get a hold of that technique, it's then easier to stop the thinking altogether. So it sort of steps them closer and closer to, to the desired outcome. Yeah. And we'll often use that same sort of terminology with mindfulness training. Yeah. Um, another analogy I would use is I do a fair bit of work in India and the more Hindu type of meditation is often about achieving silence, mm. which we can't do as Westerners, no. whereas a more Buddhist style of meditation is just stepping aside mm. and being observant in sort of our current uh, you know, where we are and what we're doing at that point in time. So, yeah, that meditation with that more Buddhist style approach, I think, you know, seems to work better from an better. insomnia point yes. of view. Yeah. Do you ever find with some of your clients, which I do in mind, that they feel quite anxious, like they may start to get a grip of that prioritising and switching off from their phones and being more connected, but they actually start to feel quite anxious and guilty about not working. Do you do you find that or do you find that perhaps the way you've already couched it with the level of priorities that they, they can cope with that? Yeah, look, the way that I frame that with my clients is that really to be very effective at their life, their work and their relationships and their, their um, parenting and so on, is that they need to be in the best state that they can be in. And they're not going to achieve that if all they do is work. So it's about helping them to recognise that by putting back into themselves, they're actually putting back into everything. Another way of looking at that also is if all that they're doing hinges on their health, if their health fails, then everything fails. So it's helping them to keep that perspective as well. So if someone comes to see me and they're reporting trouble with sleep, and my feeling is it's probably to do with busyness and they're sort of maybe a small business owner or entrepreneur, and I refer them to see you, Simon, what happens? What, what's the process? Well, the first thing always is to just assess the situation, to find out what's going on for them in their work life and in their personal life. Also to look for any kind of psychopathology. Um, perhaps they're anxious, um, particularly 
conditions like bipolar disorder, perhaps people might be um, going through manic phases where they're not sleeping properly. Those kinds of issues have to be worked out at the outset. Once we've done that, we then work on a treatment plan. So we work out what are going to be the most effective strategies for the individual. Um, and often we start with the low-hanging fruit. So things that we know that people can get control of very quickly and easily where they get a sense of success, they get some runs on the board and they start to develop more confidence that as they look at the harder issues that they've learned some tools that they can implement, they're starting to build that sense of efficacy that they can conquer difficult problems. And what about if people don't engage with that process? So I do have people say, no, busyness, that ain't part of the problem. Just fix the sleep. How could you get engagement around that? Usually with that, I'll start where the person is. So if they need me to start with sleep... I'll start with sleep. But almost always with those people, you don't really get traction very quickly because you've still got all these underlying problems. And so they'll start to come back and report that it's not really being effective enough, that they, they're wanting to see a different outcome. And that's the opening then to say, well, why do you think we're not getting traction here? What else is going on? What could be contributing? I find that if you don't get into a fight with people about what the problem is, yeah. <laughs> that they'll engage much more readily. Sure. And um, when you've given hearing to their problems, when you've when you've uh, given credence to the way they think about it and engage with that and that doesn't work, then they're more open to hearing what I, I might think. And often we see in business there's still that culture of long work hours. Remember I was asked to give a talk to a very large corporate group and the CEO briefed me and said, you know, we're all hard workers here. No, Under no circumstances can you tell my executives to work less hours. You've just got to tell them how do they switch off faster. And don't waste time on the winding down, wasn't yeah, that something like that? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Sort of don't waste time on the winding down. We, <laughs> yeah. we, you know, we're, we're machines here. We make important decisions. <laughs> so how do you get traction around that about changing the culture, you know, from that top-down sort of approach? So it's a very difficult issue when you're working with an organisation and you've got a CEO with an agenda. If you don't tread carefully around that, you'll find yourself not working with the organisation and not having the opportunity to, to do good work with people who really need it. So... Again, I'd always start with where the organisation's at and try to engage with what they're thinking, but to start to challenge what they're thinking as well to help present them with with data and research around how sleep deprivation affects people, how long work hours affects people, and help them to start to recognise that what they think is actually effective work practice really isn't. And I saw a really good example of this in a stockbroking firm uh, a while ago. This firm pushed their people very hard. They often have 7 a.m. meetings before the markets open, get their staff ready um, before the clients start calling, and then would be there, there'd be the expectation that the longer you stayed there during the day, the more likely it was you were to get promoted. And they had problems with burnout and they had problems with high turnover, all of which costs those companies a lot of money. At some point, somebody uh, suggested to them that they allow people to work from home one day a fortnight. And from the time they started doing that, their sick leave rates decreased, their turnover rates decreased, burnout decreased, engagement increased, and the, the culture in the organisation improved dramatically. And I use that sort of thing as a case example of how giving a bit of flexibility makes a huge difference to engagement and team culture and ultimately productivity. 
Fantastic. It would be great to see more of that, like that people having some control or some level of choice at least around their their work hours or, or if it's a rostering system. It's shown to have um, and one of the biggest markers of when people report work-life balance, like one of the, the key things is often that flexibility or having some kind of input into their work hours. And if they're engaged in work rather than just feeling stuck there, they actually do better for the organisation because they want the organisation to succeed. They enjoy it and they like their colleagues and the environment. And that's uh, win-win. That's fantastic. So, Moira, what did you see as the take-home points from Simon's discussion? Um, well, I think it was great. I loved I loved listening to all of it. Um, one of the key things that resonated with me was the importance of going with where the client is at, whether that's the individual or the, or the organisation. And just because I'm, sometimes I know we can get caught up in what we think is the issue with the person and it's really – and it's no use getting into some kind of conflict around that. It's really important to go with what they're saying, where yeah. they're at, where they think they're at. And even if we know or we think long-term it's not sustainable, it's not healthy practices, just to at least – hear them out, see what's going on, assess it thoroughly because it's really important that Simon's point about the um, really really important to assess for comorbidity or psychopathology mm-hmm. because there's a sleep problem but very rarely is it just a random thing. You, yep. Usually it's connected to something else and sometimes it's psychopathology um, and sometimes it's not. Yeah, yeah so I, I, I thought that was great. What about you? What's, yeah, what? I really like that analogy of the stockbroking firm and that really ties together with Christopher Barnes' research and brings it home with a real-world example. You know, so the research showing if managers aren't getting enough sleep, they treat their employees less well and create a negative workplace culture. But then if you introduce a little more downtime and a little more relaxation time, you get those improvements in productivity and improvements in um, both sleep and health. Great. So let's hope the federal government is listening to this for their next all-night Senate meeting. Yeah, no more, no more hashtag Senate sleepover. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thanks very much for your input, Simon. That's my pleasure. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. That's a pleasure. Thank you. So if you want to get more information on our theme topic about busyness and the impact on sleep, uh, you can check out Christopher Barnes' research and some of his articles in the Harvard Business Review or Huffington Post, and I've put links in the show notes. I've also put links to Simon Kinsella's uh, website and some resources that Simon's got available uh, to help with relaxation and switching off. Another great resource that I really enjoyed listening to recently is the Freakonomics uh, Radio, a series of two podcasts on sleep that they've recently uh, rebroadcast. If you're having trouble with busyness and it's impacting on your sleep, we certainly recommend that you talk to your doctor or health professional, and they may well refer you to someone like Moira or myself at a specialist uh, sleep clinic, um, or alternatively could refer you to a psychologist. Um, either in a more medical practice type of setting or, as Simon works, in a more executive coaching type of setting. So we've come to the part of the podcast where we talk about our clinical pearl for the month. Which, um, What about this, this month, David? What's your clinical pearl? So my clinical tip for this month uh, does tie in with our theme and it also ties in with a post I've written for Sleep Hub and the Huffington Post, which is really sleep is not all about the night. You know, when we're working with people, often as they're coming to see us concerned about their sleep, their talk is all about, I'm doing this at night, I'm doing this before Mm. I go to bed, I've done this to my sleep environment. But the blind spot for them is what they're doing across the day. And they might be running from pillar to post and never stopping and not having a minute of downtime across the day, but that's just the bit they're missing. And it's it's, it's sort of important to outline that maybe that's um – 
bit too little too late. If you've actually had, say, you know, a number of hours, like say 18 hours plus of motoring around and, and not necessarily having any downtime and, and feeling under threat in some way, you know, from meeting to meeting or business proposals and things you haven't done, it's going to impact on your night. It's yep. the, the nighttime is indeed a reflection of the day. Yep. It's not a random event that this is sudden, suddenly you can't sleep like they are. It's really important to have that connection that yeah. what you're doing during the day is going to impact at night. Yeah. And often people will tell me, look, I'm not stressed and I'm not worried, yeah. but you can actually get into that high adrenaline mode just by busyness, oh, just yeah. behaviourally. And also excitement. I mean, it could be a young yeah. child on Christmas Eve. <laughs> you yeah. know, so it's not that they're stressed. They're yes. just so excited. They're anticipating. And so it can be good things, but yeah. you're just overstimulation. So Moira, what's your pick of the month? What's really caught your eye? this month? Oh, well, hot off the press, or you know, last month in May, the um, the American College of Physicians produced their latest clinical guidelines, mm-hmm. which I have no idea how long they put out, what frequency they put out. I, I gather usually it's many, many years yep. in between. And this time around, there's been a lot of talk about it in our field. So I gather it's been a long time in between, but the biggest thing about the guidelines that have just been put out, and we can put a link in the show notes, is that it's the very first time the American College of Physicians have said that the first line of treatment for people with insomnia is CBTI. So cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia, which we, what psychologists do, which other medical people can do. But people, it's the biggest part about that is it's a non-drug approach. Yeah. Often it's in, you know, in conjunction with some medication. But it's really, really heartening to see that it's the first line treatment. And it's been, that's, that's new. I and mean, I think, um, the UK have probably got it. Have they had it for some time in their guidelines, which yeah. was relatively new not, not long ago? It's just, yeah. So that was exciting. That was nice. And what do you think about that? Yeah. Fantastic. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. And it did actually get a lot of media coverage. Um, in the popular media in the United States. Oh, I did it. I didn't so know that. It was really well publicised mm, and really highlighted good. that you know non drug approach is is the first line therapy for insomnia, yeah. which goes with you know your and I's practice and the way uh, we generally practice. So really nice to see that coming out from the peak body of physicians in mm. the United States. And there was a second part to their guidelines. Mm-hmm. Clinicians use a shared decision making approach, which is fantastic. So mm-hmm. not just talking just what their own opinion is, like really talking with the client and with other colleagues yep. about the various risks, harm, benefits of, of any kind of approach with their insomnia. So knowing that's a long-term approach as well, that it's really important. It's like a chronic disease model mm-hmm. that we've talked about for a long time, yep. you and I, or you know, our field, that insomnia generally is not just a one-off thing, yep. particularly by the time they've gone to the GP about it, you know, when you're actually seeking some kind of help. Yeah. It's something that you need to manage the rest of your life then on and off. What about you? What was your what have you noticed this month? Is something um, intriguing? I'm actually going to quote one of my favorite books. So it's not a recent book, but one of my favorites and it does tie in with our topic. So it's called Dangerously Sleepy: Overworked Americans and the Cult of Manly Wakefulness by <laughs> Alan Derrickson. Oh, do you know when was was it published? Did don't know. I won't put you on the spot with looking at Hang the on. Uh, 2014. Okay, was, was so relatively recently. So Alan Derrickson's a professor of labor studies and history at Pennsylvania State University and really looks at uh, the work ethic and long-time association of overwork and sleep deprivation in the United States from the 19th century through to the present. And it's just a really nice summary of how we've got into this position of um, feeling like being this busyness is you know, good and has a positive trait, but losing track of the negative impacts both for health and performance that that has. Excellent. 
So we come to the part of the podcast when we look at the things that are coming up in the next month or this com- this month. What things should we be looking out for in the sleep field at the moment, Dave? So when this podcast goes to air, the Sleep 2016 meeting will be on. So check out social media. There'll be uh, lots of tweets and lots of information about some of the latest presentations at the Sleep 2016 meeting in Denver. For those of us involved in sleep research, uh, June's the month for us to get our abstracts in for the Australasian Sleep Association's annual scientific meeting for us to present research there. So that meeting this year is going to be in Adelaide between the 20th and 22nd of October, uh, but abstracts are due uh, by mid-June. Next month on the podcast, we'll be presenting an update from the Denver meeting, Sleep 2016, with some of the latest research on sleep and sleep disorders, as well as some of the latest gadgets that are on show at the trade display. Perfect. You'll be in heaven <laughs> talking about gadgets. <laughs> well, I might just have to blank out and zone off on that one. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, speaking of, speaking of gadgets, I'm just going to telegraph, there's going to be a new segment from next month's podcast on technology <laughs> where I get to, Great, I get well, to show I'll, off a gadget each month. Good. And I'll get educated and move into the 20th yeah, the the century. 20th, I'm in, the, yeah. 20th century. <laughs> the 20th century. The 20th. I'm still on the 20th, let alone the 21st. Yeah. <laughs> so if you do have uh, sleep gadgets you want me to take a look at or talk about, uh, send me an email at uh, podcast at sleephub.com.au. And thanks a lot for listening. Thanks, everyone. See you next month. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 